All that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for just everything. Thank you that you chose 60 years ago today for some of us to be alive, and you chose 32 years ago for others, and, and just the, the, the timing of, of your will is impeccable. And so we recognize that we're not just here on a Sunday morning because of you, but we're here on this earth because of you. And we're here breathing and living and uh, drinking coffee or water or tea, whatever. And, and it's all because of you. And it's all to you and it's all for you. And so, Father, we pray that today we'd learn just even a little bit more about you. And we'd be confronted by a little bit more of your truth. And we'd believe it a little bit more. And we'd be wrapped up in your story a little bit more. God, we thank you that this isn't about us. That we're caught up in something way, way bigger. And that's encouraging and freeing and exciting all at the same time. And so, Father, we just give you the glory for today, for everything that's going to happen. We pray that uh, it would be, again, to you and by you and for you and through you and all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. So I'm going to spend most of my time in the Old Testament, and I'm going to do just a brief, uh, brief-ish Bible overview. I'm going to do my very best, so stay with me. I'm going to try to stay committed to that promise that I made earlier. Um, like I said, Sam didn't give me much direction, and he told me that you guys had just finished a series, Taking the Land, and you're moving into, I believe, a worship series. And so I was like, okay, how do I find myself caught in the middle of this, and what can I do to, to help this? And so I, I, uh, he said, speak about whatever you're passionate about, and this is absolutely something I'm passionate about since doing this school. So starting in Genesis, uh, we read this story, and whether you think it's metaphoric or poetic or literal or whatever isn't really the point. That's fine. We can debate those things. That's great. But what it does do or what it should do is point us to the creator. It should point us to uh, we are not in control of any of this. This is God's project, purpose, will. It was by him and through Jesus and all those incredible things. And that's what we see at the start of Genesis. It's not meant to like Uh, necessarily point us to exact specific dates or times and that's not even how the the Hebrews would write they would write with uh, poetry and grandeur one of my favorite examples was um, you could ask somebody like myself who was raised with very uh, western way of thinking you could say hey describe Jesus and I'd use words like strong like very specific descriptive words, but then you could ask somebody raised with an Eastern mindset, and you could say, describe God, and they'd say, oh, fortress. They'd, like, start painting a picture as opposed to giving specifics, and neither is more correct than the other. They're both incredibly helpful to the conversation, but it was so cool for me to think about, oh, wow, like, this story at the beginning of the Bible, it points to this, like, poetic, beautiful, incredible, far beyond my ability to structure or put it in a box, right? Like, we love we love the periodic table, and we love structure and spreadsheets and calendars, and we like things to be organized and scheduled and uh, defined, right? We've got a whole, I don't know, the species, phylum, familia, whatever. Like, we love putting things in boxes, and then we get to the platypus, and we're like, ah, just stick it in a box, because it has to be in one. Um, but that's not, that's not necessarily the way that our God works. It is in part, but he's also just so much bigger. So that's what the, the story of Genesis is supposed to point to. And so we see this plan and this uh, almost like a project that he has going on, and we see how we kind of interrupt it and we get in the way of it time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. And it goes from Adam all the way to Noah, and we see the story of the ark, which is God's redemption plan. And it's not this, 
insane story of judgment, while it is that, another part of the story is it's his mercy and it's his willingness to work with the plan that we broke. Uh, and it's his, um, yeah, love and his, his patience again and again. And then we get, fast forward to Abraham, chapter 12, Genesis, one of the most incredible things. Is anybody in here uh, a homeowner, has a mortgage, or is married, or is in some sort of contractual agreement? Anybody? I am, definitely. Man, it's, it's like contracts to us make sense because we're like, I'll do my part, you do your part. But in Genesis 12, we read God says, hey, I'll do my part and your part. I'll sign the contract for both of us, and you'll get all the benefits, and I'll hold all the responsibility. Genesis chapter 12 is incredible. Like the, the way that this, like he, it, it would be like me going to my nine-month-old. That doesn't even work. Like I'm just using a metaphor to try. It'd be like me going to my nine-month-old and like that power difference, right? Like I hold all the authority in the house. But it's like me, yeah, okay, you're right. I don't. <laughs> you're correct. You called that one correctly. <laughs> Um, I hold some of the authority of my house, uh, but it'd be like me going to, to Bailey, my nine-month-old, and writing a contract with her and, and saying, hey, even though over the next however many years you're going you're gonna to not do what it is that I tell you to do, potty training is going to take way longer than I want it to, you learning how to feed yourself is going to be way messier than I want it to, all of these things that you're not going to be perfect at, I will hold the responsibility and I'll love you all the way through it, all the same. It's, it's incredible, and that's, that's not even a good representation because Bailey and I are so close to being on the same level, and God is just so far above. It's, yeah, it's amazing. So then we get through the rest of the story of Genesis, and we find ourselves at the end of it with uh, a man named Joseph who comes from the same line as Abraham, uh, a son of Jacob, and he's there in Egypt, and he invites his family to come and live in Egypt, and then the story takes this wild turn where uh, one generation, they are welcomed and they are given a good part of the land and they are uh, in Egypt because they didn't have food and they're taken care of and they're established and it's great. And then the very next generation, when the next Pharaoh takes power, he just, we don't get a timeline, but probably in one, probably within a year, just enslaves them. Just takes them from that position of um, priority and authority and, and enslaves them. And this lasts 400 years. And that is so hard to wrap our mind around. 400 years. If, if the average generation gap is 25 years, that's 16 generations. 16 generations later, some guy comes out of the desert named Moses, and he's like, hey, we're going to go home. And at this point, the Israelites, they don't have a temple or a, a book of faith or like little cross necklaces or fish tattoos. They don't have any of that because they have zero religious identity, like zero community identity. They just know that they belong to some guy who got some promise way back in chapter 12 about being something to someone at some point for some reason. That's what they have. And they've got stories, and they've been passed down, and probably most of them are like, yeah, that Abraham guy's a legend, like, it's, it's not real, it's something made up to keep us hopeful, but we don't know what for. Like, their mindset would be so pressed down, and so, ooh, you can read it, right? You go through Exodus, and the amount of times they're like, hey, let's go back to slavery, like, let's go back to Egypt, 
leaving makes no sense because I'm tired and I'm hungry and I'd prefer the slave labor than this. Like their identity as a family or a people group is just, it's, it's just gone. It doesn't exist. They would rather be enslaved than the potential hope of freedom. It's, it's wild. It's, a, it's an insane story. And then the next 40 years they spend in the wilderness gathering identity, getting, getting a book. It starts with all the laws, right? Uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time is, boundaries bring freedom. We don't love that one because we're like, no, boundaries trap me, right? We talked about boxes earlier. Boundaries define me, and I don't want to be defined. I want to push past. But if you have boundaries, again, let's go to my kids, right? They're not allowed to go down and jump in the lake by themselves because they're four, two, and nine months old, and that is unsafe. And so there's a very clear boundary if you're going to this part of the house or, or down the stairs or here, you need me with you because that's loving. It would not be loving for me to be like, hey, you're four, do whatever you want. Go for your life. What do you want for breakfast? Just a cup of sugar? Great, sounds good. No, there's boundaries and there have to be boundaries because if there's not boundaries, you don't have an identity. If you're not, if you're not fixed into some sort of, in this, in this uh specific example, the nation is getting given the, the law, right, out in the wilderness, and they've got the tabernacle, and um, Moses goes up and comes back down with the law, and the law is, hey, all of these things are for your benefit. Don't do these things. Do these things. Don't do those things. Do some of those things. Do this the right way, and, and it'd be easy to, to see how some of them would be like, ah, that, I don't like that, that you're telling me what to do, when to do it, how to do it, but all of them are explicitly for the benefit of the nation to define themselves, to be different from the world around them, uh, to, to stop sacrificing to God's... Um, we, we learned about some of, the, some of the terrible, terrible practices that the nations had at that time. And the Israelites would have been fully indoctrinated in uh, Egyptian theology. All of those gods would have been their gods, or at least to some degree who they believed influenced the world around them. And some of those practices are just absolutely horrific, like child sacrifice and uh, all sorts of other things, body mutilation, all of it. It's just crazy. And God says, hey, I really want you guys to be set apart. And in order to be set apart, you need these things. You need these laws. You need these uh, ways of standing outside of what the world would call normal. And so while it can be frustrating to adhere to rules and laws, God says, hey, this is, what, this is what will make you that nation that I've set apart. So the Israelites get all these rules, get all these regulations, and as the story goes, uh, they then take the land, right? You guys just did this. They then go, and Joshua, and they cross the Jordan, and they get into the land, and they uh, conquer it, and they have outrageous success, like, like, miraculous success taking the land to the point where it like doesn't even make sense like people are just giving them land and getting out of their way and God is blessing them and blessing them and blessing them and they went from in about 80 years right including Joshua's life they went from absolute slavery zero identity to owning and conquering like like uh without a mortgage (laughs) uh what's it called freehold they had freehold on the land they had it. It was given to them by God. It was incredible. It was actually um, Joshua's time of leadership is one of, if not the most fruitful time in all of um, uh, Israeli history. You could, you could put David in there as well. There's some other issues there, but it's, it's just incredible. Like they go through this 
flourishing of identity and understanding of who they are. And everyone's playing their roles the right way. The Levites are there. They're doing their thing. The sacrifices are coming. The um, tribe of Judah and, and the other ones that are on the front lines are winning the wars. And it's just, it's just like, wow, this is real. Like God is real and he really has set us apart. We've gone from absolute slavery to absolute victory. It's incredible. And then, if you keep reading, uh, we just love to test God and mess it up. <laughs> we just love to see, hey, how good is your faithfulness? And uh, you read all through the story of um, all through the story of Judges, all the way to Samuel, even Ruth in there. The time period gets a little bit fuzzy, but it's just time after time after time after time of people having the best intentions. And then doing this one thing, this one thing that ruins it all. And the one thing that they do is they put themselves on the throne. It's before the time of kings, which we're about to get to. But the one thing that they do, that they continuously do, and we do it too, is we take who is meant to be on the throne, and we sideline him, and we put ourselves there. And we say, actually, my success, my story, my lineage I want to be known, right? You see it in Samson. He's incredible. And in kids' church, he's cool for some things, but when you read the real story and you, you recognize what's going on in his heart is you're like, wow, this dude is incredibly selfish. He is all about himself. Oh, it's such a weird thought. A cool note on um, Samson is uh, we talked about how he was probably really scrawny. Like it probably made no sense, all the things that he did, right? Like when he did a, 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 a feat of strength, he probably didn't look the part. Like, that would have made it that much more like, if he looked like this big, bulked-out gym dude, right? If he looked like The Rock, people would have been like, yeah, look at him. He's super strong. But he was probably like, like, he probably looked like me, and he was just like, hey, take these gates and go for a, you know, 400K walk or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyways, that's kind of a cool thought to be like, oh. Um, so then the Israelites cry out for a king, and God says, hey, you probably don't want a king. And they're like, no, we definitely do. And uh, this is a fun distinction that I made when I was studying. Um, when Saul becomes king, he's out looking for donkeys. He's a donkey herder. And there's another name for donkeys, which I won't use because I'm on a stage. Uh, but he is a donkey herder. And that is the first king of Israel. I feel like it's God being like, hey, you guys need a donkey herder. So here you go. The very first king. Herds donkeys, and that's probably what the people were being like. Anyways, um, so then you go from Saul to David, and David is a shepherd, and that is the picture of, of you ask anybody who knows their biblical history, you ask any Jew, anybody who is uh, even remotely attached to the story, and you say, who, who, who was the greatest king of Israel? David, absolutely David. It's like Jesus, David in their mind, and then anybody else is down here. David is the picture of what it is that God had prescribed for them when it comes to a king. He's a shepherd. He is a man of absolute humility. Not always integrity, right? He struggles in that area, and we've seen that a couple times in his life, but he is a man of absolute humility. Even when he's wrong, he's on his knees, right? He's the king of, at that time, one of, if not the most powerful, prosperous, amazing nations to have ever existed up until that point in history, and he is on his knees, and he is dancing, and he is broken and he is weeping and he is writing those psalms and he is like pouring his heart out to this God and that is the picture that God says of, of who it is that he wants to be king. So I'm going to fast forward through pretty much the rest of it. We see um, 
from there, we get Solomon, and then the empire is split, right? You got the southern and the northern kingdom. You've got Judah and Israel, and Israel at some point goes into absolute slavery again, and they completely disappear from the story. And then Judah carries on, and then they get conquered by Babylon, which then becomes Persia. This whole messy story comes back to it. And then we're left with 400 years, another 400 years of silence, where it feels like God isn't speaking. There's nothing going on. There's... Uh, obscurity around identity and they don't know who they are again and uh and it's just kind of quiet just not much going on and then boom onto the scene comes jesus and the people who get it are like oh this is the king this is what we were promised so we go all the way back now if we could pull up exodus chapter 19 verse 6 i think i gave you one to six and that's okay Oh, just six? Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's perfect. Um, so this is the line that I think encompasses exactly what it was that God was intending. Am I at the right place? I am. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the point that I'd like to get across to you, and I'm, I'm coming into land, the point that I'd like to get across to you is that you were never, ever intended to have... Uh, what we like to think of a crown on our heads. We were never intended, not in like when we get to heaven, princes and princesses and all that. That's, I don't know. We can talk about that at length. But right here, right now on earth, we're not intended to be kings and queens of our own lives. We're not intended to take that autonomy that was given to us and use it however we want. We were intended to take that autonomy like Adam and Eve and to just use it to further his kingdom. Use it to be whatever your practices, whatever it is that you do in life, uh, from gardening to being a doctor to being a musician to being a pastor, whatever it is that you do in life, the intended purpose is that you would be a priest in the temple of God. The reason why the Israelites were set apart from the other nations is because while they had their religious practices and they had their kings and they had their queens, God said, hey, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be the one who sits on the throne, and I'm going to be the one who makes the hard calls and the tough decisions. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, we see him holding both sides of the contract with the explicit purpose of him being on the throne, making the calls, not, not making the calls in your day-to-day -day life, right? He's not going to come down and be like, oh, don't wear that. That color doesn't look good on you, okay? You can only wear these clothes. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it comes to the uh, whose kingdom are we building? Am I out for myself? Am I trying to further my name? Am I trying to be about myself? Am I trying to uh, gain followers? Am I trying to leave this life more famous than when I came into it? Or am I trying to leave this life making God more famous than when I came into it? And that is the key difference. And if we go back to the story where the kingdom split, uh, after Solomon, you had the northern kingdom who never had a king that respected the temple, ever. For the rest of, of the northern kingdom's existence, they disrespected it, disregarded it, had idols, had problems, had infidelity, had whatever the world says was good, had it. Money, uh, pursuit of happiness, whatever it was, that's what they went after. In the southern kingdom, there were kings that came in, and whenever the temple was respected and cleaned out and the idols were put away and the altars were torn down, whenever that happened, there was prosperity. And not just financial prosperity, but the people were well, and the plagues left the land, and the, the children stopped dying. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was 
overwhelming prosperity in every aspect of life. I think, I think it's incredible. Actually, this part wasn't intended, but I was just talking to Jesse about how amazing New Zealand is. I know I sound American, but I'm more Kiwi than I am American. My accent, I did high school in the States, and so I'm just going to sound like this for forever. But I'm Kiwi at my core, okay? Um, and we're an amazing nation. And, and, like, it doesn't make sense how much influence we have on the world for our size and location. We are in the corner of nowhere, and we have influence, and we have uh, a platform, and we have, we're talking just about rugby, the amount of rugby players from New Zealand on all the other teams, and how half the other teams are coached by Kiwis. And it's like, we, we are almost, not entirely, but we are almost single-handedly taking this sport that we're the best at and throwing it onto the, the, the main stage of the earth. Rugby is gaining incredible popularity in the world, mostly because of the All Blacks from that you know, time that we had where we were just unbeatable. But not just that, we were. We were. We were incredible. We've had that several times. But we've got, we've got uh, the first person to break the four-minute mile was a Kiwi. The first person, first person to summit Mount Everest, right? There were people who lived there. But the first person who wasn't born and, like, raised in the Himalayas, who didn't jog up them when they were three years old, the first person from outside the country to conquer the highest point on Earth was a Kiwi. We have an amazing pioneering nation. And so, oh, this was the point that I was going to make. This church seems to have this priest thing firmly at the center of it because I think half of the people here right now were at the team huddle. <laughs> like, you guys get that this life isn't about you. And so the reason why I bring Kiwis into this is, man, I feel like there is actually something happening in this nation. I feel like there is this, like, uh, incredible return and response to what God's doing in the world. And I feel like... Uh, for some of the more powerful nations, because of their influence and popularity and wealth, they can have the fame if they want it. But I feel like Kiwis will work for it. And I feel like if we were committed as a, just this, this church, this family as well, but the church across New Zealand, man, if we were committed to this, if we are committed to this like, hey, not my life but yours, hey, not my will but yours, man, I think a revival could absolutely start here at the corner of the earth. And I think it could spread because we're one of the most traveled nations as well. Did you guys know that? Man, we're amazing. Yeah, good on us. We don't say that enough. Eh? So here's, the, here's where I'm ending. So if the worship team wanted to, to start coming up, here's where I'm ending. What I'm saying is uh, take some time, and maybe during this song, take some time and look at yourself and, and look inside and ask yourself, not just on the, on the big issues where it matters, but on the little issues as well. Who sits on the throne of your heart? Who has been made king or queen of your life? Who has been put in that position of authority to decide which way your life goes. Is it you? Are you holding on to it? Are you, are you grasping at something that you were never intended to hold on to? It's a responsibility that God, like, it's not just that he wants it, it's that he loves it, and he's the best at it. Every single time he was given back the throne and the temple was cleared out and they went back to worshiping and they went back to this uh, genuine heartfelt response to the Lord, even after David did those things that he did, when he went back and again worshipped and again poured his heart out and again went low and low and low and said, you're the king, you're the king, you're the king. Every single time that happened in the Old Testament, there was prosperity. And that's not the goal. That's not what we're chasing. There's prosperity in God's kingdom. So we live 
post-Jesus, so they were looking forward at this veiled event coming in the Old Testament. They knew that something was going to happen, but they didn't exactly know what. There's prophecy about it, and they, you know, had like maybe a shadow or like an image, but we live past that. We live post the unveiling of Jesus, post the coming of the king, the king. He came, and he didn't come and conquer and pull out his sword and, and uh, shout from the hilltops and bring attention to himself. He came and he served and he was a priest in his father's house. He is the greatest example of what it means to wash feet, and we don't necessarily do that today, but you understand the metaphor. Wash each other's feet, go low, serve each other, be a community that is just on fire with being priests and being servants to one another. I know that servant word is, be priests to one another. Be in the house of God. Be found in the house of God, cleaning out the idols, cleaning out the things. Be found loving one another and embracing one another. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you hearing what I'm saying? We were never intended to be kings. So let's not take something that we're <laughs> clearly bad at anyways. Father, we are again thankful to you. You have this way of patience that it just doesn't make sense. You have this way of coming time and time again and, and sitting and, and opening your arms, and you never force us. You never take the reins by force and push us down or, or, or uh, make us feel ashamed of ourselves for, for taking that seat. You just wait patiently and lovingly for us to again return. Father, would we be priests in your house? Will we be found, would New Zealand be found as a kingdom of priests? Would New Zealand be found as, as a place where people come and it's different? The atmosphere is different and the churches are different because they love one another and the people inside the church love one another and gossip is far from us and we're not known for the things that the church has been known for historically, but we're known for a place of absolute surrender to your will. God, you are the king. You are. It's not debatable. We can't, we can't sit around and debate about who has more authority, you or us, it's you. So Father, today we just again declare that you are good and you are wonderful, and will we be found as worshipers in your house? In Jesus' name, amen.